The global supply chain is strained. One essential transportation network continues to keep the economy connected 24-7. That network is freight rail. We're increasing hiring and capacity, all while investing more than $20 billion per year into our network to improve reliability every day. We never stop working to better serve our customers because freight rail works. G'day everybody, Lauren Cress, the business scientist here. Hope you're having a great start to the week. So today we're going to be going through part four of the Ikigai series. We're going to talk about what can you be paid for. But before we get on to that, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. I pay my respects to elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples living and working on the land today. And this week is Reconciliation Week. So uh, I've just been sort of reading up a little bit on it so I could talk about it. Um, there were lots of things that I didn't didn't really know about this. So um I was really excited to learn more. If you go to reconciliation.org.au, it will tell you a little bit about what the theme of this year's Reconciliation Week is about, which is more than a word. Uh, there's some really great info on here. It talks about the – so it says, according to the 2020 Australian Reconciliation Barometer, there is far greater awareness of the complexity and magnitude of First Nations cultures and knowledges and many more Australians now understand the brutal impact that British colonisation and the modern Australian state have had on First Nations families and communities. So um, that's really encouraging. And, you know, Reconciliation Week has been happening for the last 20 years. And I think it's really awesome that it's come such a long way in that time. Um, obviously still a long, long way to go. And one of the things that they talk about on uh, reconciliation.org.au is sort of around this theme of from awareness to action. So for reconciliation to be effective, they say it must involve truth-telling and actively address issues of inequality, systemic racism and instances where the rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are ignored, denied or reduced. It also says, while we see greater support for reconciliation from the Australian people than ever before, we must be more determined than ever if we are to achieve the goals of the movement, a just, equitable and reconciled Australia. So go check that out. There's a cool video on there as well. Go to reconciliation.org.au and I hope you have and are having a great reconciliation week. So I also wanted to give you guys a bit of an update on... (laughs) what's happening in my life. So a lot of you, if you've been listening, if you've listened to the show before, you'll know that for the last few months, I've been working with a company called People Strength over in the US. And my contract is just about to finish up with those guys. I've had such an awesome time working with them and I highly recommend checking out what they do. Uh, but for me now, I'm actually, it's so funny to be like doing this guy series as I'm kind of sort of figuring out my next step in my career. And some of you might've seen that I posted on LinkedIn uh, towards the end of last week, I think it was, 
that I had made up my mind to apply for a uh, course here at uh, James Cook University. Uh, It's quite a short course. It's eight months and it's to become a qualified career practitioner. And one of the things that I realized as I was kind of going through all of this stuff we've been talking about with the Ikigai, even though I've kind of gone through the process myself before, is I was like, yes, counseling is definitely, you know, where I'm headed. And some of you know, I'm studying counseling as well. But I have this real interest in helping people do their best work. So as we've been talking about sort of like looking back, you know, I use that framework of like, um, which actually I learned from Brian Fretwell at People Strength, like sort of looking at past questions, present questions, and sort of future questions. Like we were going through that when we were talking about what you're good at and what your strengths are. And for me, uh, you know, I think I've mentioned on the show a few times before, I'm like, one of the things for me is that like, I just always find people ask me about this stuff. Like I've ended up falling into sort of positions where I'm helping people with career guidance, but I'm not because I can't really, because I'm not really qualified to do that. So I've kind of, it's sort of like I do it as a friend thing, you know, like, or the other thing that I sort of have helped people with, which is more on the marketing side is their LinkedIn profiles. And I've talked about that on the show before as well. Um, and I often get people kind of saying like, your LinkedIn profile is so good. Like, how did you know to do that? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm just really interested in it. I just really think like how we showcase ourselves to the world, so how we do our personal branding so that we can achieve the things we want to achieve in our life. I just find that super interesting. You know, I've, I've mentored university students and a lot of the time when I talk on podcast shows, I get asked to talk about sort of the story of my career progression and career journey. And I was like, I can do this as a fucking job. Why don't I just do it as a job? So I'm really, really excited about it. I'm really excited to, I have been accepted now since I um, posted on LinkedIn uh, into JCU to do that course. So in uh, about nine months, I will be a qualified career practitioner and I will be able to coach people on their career journey so I'm super super excited about that and it will be even before I finish my uh, counseling course uh, which I will be finishing at the end of next year so anyway I am also back at looking at a few different job opportunities and sort of like what can I be paid for which is quite good timing for this episode but just before we start diving into that I came across this article and I was like oh I have to share this because I kind of have fucked up this icky guy thing a little bit guys like and actually a lot of people have so I went um I found this website called ikigaitribe.com and They have an article, it's actually been published a while ago, um, mid-2019, called Ikigai Misunderstood and the Origin of the Ikigai Venn Diagram, which that Venn Diagram is sort of what I've used in the workbook that I have created previously, the new one that I've been creating now, and also like I've done a video about it and stuff, and I've just always known about this Ikigai Venn Diagram, like that's kind of my understanding of it. Um, since I found out about the concept. And I guess this is a really, really good example of how, you know, misinformation can spread because if you Google it and it's there, you kind of just go, oh, yeah, this. And, you know, I'm like, I'm someone who's done a science degree and I've learned about all those issues with, like, misinformation spreading. But actually that Ikigai diagram that we've been talking through, it's not that it's not useful or anything like that, but it's actually technically not Ikigai. And what this article is saying, it's sort of like a westernized version of 
the Ikigai. And it's actually based like these four components that we're walking through. Uh, you know, so doing something, are you doing something you love? Are you doing something the world needs? Are you doing something you're good at? And can you be paid for it? Well, actually that comes from somewhere else. So that comes from the Zuzunaga Venn diagram of purpose by Andre or on, I think it's Andre Zuzunaga um, from Spain. And it sort of surfaced in 2011. So in this article, I explain it first publicly appeared in his book, which is Que Haria Sino Tuvieras Miedo, What Would You Do If You Weren't Afraid, um, by Borja Villaseca. And he kind of references this um, this diagram. And then this diagram has been taken up by people in HR and people in career development. And I was like, oh, okay. So it's super useful. And one of the things that they kind of say as well in this article is actually it's super, super useful for people who, you know, want to um, pursue an entrepreneurship kind of career, right? But it's also super useful in general. So I just wanted to spend a few moments talking about what the Ikigai actually means, um, what these guys are talking about on the website. So um, they kind of say, and again, like I'm getting this off Google, so um, ikigaitribe.com, but I think it's a really interesting perspective. Um, So what they say is the the Japanese use of the word is more casual in conversation and um, there's sort of, it's not this grander concept. It's not this sort of like framework in the way that we talk about it. Um, so Ken Mogi talks about who they reference in this article. Um, he says that the Japanese do not need a grandiose motivational framework to keep going, but rely more on the little rituals in their daily routines. Um, I'll tell you more about Ken Mogi in a second, but I think that that's, sort of a really interesting point so the the, what we're talking about is quite a western a western idea um so let's just have a quick look at I'm, i'm like talking through this and like i do this sometimes i literally just google as i'm on my podcast show because it's just it's just easier so uh, Ken Mogi is a Japanese scientist. Um, he works at Sony Computer Science Laboratories, senior researcher there. Um, and also he is the author of Awakening Your Ikigai. So um, he also wrote another book called The Little Book of Ikigai. So if you want to learn more about the Japanese perspective of Ikigai, this podcast hasn't talked you through it, right? Ken Mogi can talk you through that. Uh, and I think that would, if you want to kind of understand that from that perspective, I think that would be like, I'm definitely going to be checking out these books. I'm really excited about it. Um, and I love the idea of, you know, sort of thinking about it more from like daily rituals, um, which is kind of a little bit of what uh, we'd already started talking about with, you know, how can you change the world for the better? Like there's little things you can do every day. So I'll be exploring that. and I'll be telling you guys more about that. But I still want to talk through the rest of this model because it is really useful. And that's what they kind of say in this article as well. So um, we're going to talk about the Venn diagram of purpose. I'm going to keep the series called Ikigai because that's how people Google it and look for it. 
Um, but we're up to the final part. We're up to the part about what can you be paid for. Now, if you're listening to this and you haven't listened to the other parts and you're still here, go back and listen to the other parts first because this really is the final piece of the puzzle. And also I think it sort of doesn't make sense if you start from this point. If you start from the point of like, what can you be paid for? It's like, it's too broad. There's lots of things that you can be paid for. And you want to sort of already be having that idea of here's the lens that we're looking through this with, right? Like, what am I good at? What, what am I, what am I, uh, what do I love to do? And what does the world need? Um, The other thing is, is that it's not necessarily the case that you have to be only uh, – you have to find something that meets all of these needs in one thing, right? So it could be, for instance, that you are – you are helping the world with what the world needs through those little things that you do every day, through the conversations that you have in the workplace, through – all these, uh, you might also be like, I mean, the other day I booked a flight and I was, it was like, do you want to pay? Like it was so cheap. It was like four bucks for like to make this a carbon neutral flight essentially. So the, the, what your costs in the environment you put, you sort of fund back in to make it carbon neutral, right? Uh, it's, I think it's called like carbon offset or something like that. So I was like, yeah, I want to do that. And I'm like, that's four bucks. But if everyone did that, that makes a difference, right? If every time someone booked a flight, they just spent a few extra dollars to offset the carbon emissions that are created from them taking that trip. That adds up and it makes a big difference. So it doesn't mean that like if you're doing something that you're like, oh, you know, well, I guess the world could take this or leave this. You know, I'm I'm a freelance illustrator and like it's sort of I feel like what I do in my day-to-day work to make money isn't really changing the world. It's sort of a neutral thing. But maybe on the side you're doing like you have an Instagram account where you illustrate um, things that help to raise awareness about the good things that are happening in the world, you know, but you don't make money from that. But that's like your side project. It's like a hobby. Or maybe it becomes like something that you can make a bit of money out of if you want it to. I think there's a lot to be said for things that you love to do that don't make money. You know, for instance, I don't think my poetry is ever going to make money. But I'm not, it's not like I'm going to be like, well, I just won't bother writing poems then because that's something that's meaningful to me. You know, art journaling, art journaling can be a great way to like figure stuff out, but it doesn't mean that you necessarily have to make money from it. Seeing a therapist, well, that costs me money, but that's actually tied in with all these other things that make my life better and make my work better. So I think, you know, we need to, this framework is useful, but it's not like an all or nothing thing unless I can have all of my needs met through one thing that I do at work, you know, and that's it. Um, I think that's a really important consideration. Okay. So let's talk about this now. Like how do you make money? Well, like, I mean, the typical way that a lot of us are used to is that you get a job and then you make money from that job. So it could be that you're paid a salary. It could be that you're a contractor and you're paid for a certain amount of hours or a certain amount of months of work. It could be that you are a um, you, you are a casual worker where, you again, you get paid for the time that you work. 
Like we kind of are all familiar with that aspect of payment. But when it actually comes to more like freelancing and entrepreneurship, online education, things where you're trying to create, you know, or even like running, like, you know, generating a passive revenue stream, doing something that's outside of that typical, like I work for pay. And usually that's going to be linked with the number of hours you work. Then you need to understand a little bit more about value creation. Now, the book that I recommend and where I've taken this from um, to learn more about this is a book I've talked about uh, before, which is called The Personal MBA by Josh Kaufman. Uh, Seth Godin's endorsement for the book is file this book under no excuses. Um, It's a number one bestseller. And honestly, I think I've learned more. I've paid to do courses and stuff before. And I honestly think I learned more from even reading the first half of this book. It is super valuable. Um, Now you can actually access what Josh Kaufman's done, which is super smart, is he's created um, a website that has all of these different sections in the book, like in their own pages. So um, I, I will actually link you this section of the book. You don't even have to pay for it. It's free. So there are really no excuses. Um, and it's called 12 Standard Forms of Value. Uh, the quote at the top is, value is not intrinsic. It is not in things. It is within us. It is the way in which man, I don't like using man, let's say a person, reacts to the conditions of their environment. Okay, then that's from Ludwig von Mises, the Austrian economist. I'm going to go off on a little side rant for two seconds. Okay, if you're writing quotes in 2021, there is no excuse for writing and there is no reason to write things based on one gender identity. You don't need to say man. You don't need to say woman. And actually there's a Facebook page where someone has taken all of the quotes that, you know, use man to reference humanity and changed it to woman. And I think it makes it really clear that it's like not inclusive language. So please, 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 if you're going to, if you don't already do this and you're writing. Oh, we could, we could fly. This is your summer. That means six flags in the taste of an ice cold Coca-Cola. We're talking thrilling coasters, delicious burgers, real moments together, and this. Coke is summer refreshment when you need it most, so you can hop on another ride or race down a slide at the water park. Six Flags and Coca-Cola. Come make it yours. Visit sixflags.com slash Coke to save up to $20 on passes, plus daily tickets starting at $34.99. Quotes or you're quoting someone. Just use, instead of which man, just use human. So value is not intrinsic. It is not in things. It is within us. It is the way in which humans react to the conditions of their environment. It doesn't change the meaning. It doesn't ruin the quote. It, it just actually includes the other half of the population. Um, and it also includes people who are non-binary in their gender identity. So, okay, end of rant. Now, back to 12 standard forms of value. So, he kind of goes through each one of these in detail. I'll give you a quick overview and then we can have a bit more of a dig into each one of these forms of value. So um, one, the first one is like a product, right? So you create an item or you create an entity and people purchase it, right? And people purchase it for a price that costs more than it costs you to make it, right? So otherwise it's not sustainable. So 
costs us $50 to make the product, we sell it for $200, for instance. And the $150 is your profit margin. Uh, the second form of value is service. So you're providing help, you're assisting people, and then you're charging a fee to benefit people from that for people to receive those benefits. Um, one thing that probably um, you're familiar with is software as a service, SaaS or SaaS. SaaS platforms basically are replacing, they're, they're sort of performing the same role as a service does, but it's been productized. And that's something that's part of the fourth industrial revolution. That's something that we're seeing happen more and more and more because it's much more scalable. So instead of having to pay someone to you know go through and send an email to everyone in your audience and and do that you can have a platform that sort of does that for you a probably a better example would be like a chatbot right so instead of having a person you know filtering all your initial inquiries if you have a chatbot at on your website and on facebook and other places that you are online they can it can sort of do the initial troubleshooting and filtering and then put that that person through to a customer service representative at the appropriate time. Um, lots and lots of software as a service platforms out there. It's a massively booming industry and it's sort of part of the piece as well where, you know, th- there's a concern of like, well, okay, if there's all these automation platforms that are doing all of these services that we used to pay people for, what's going to happen to work what's going to happen to jobs right and that's where sort of really looking at well what are your talents and what are your skill sets and where do you do things that a computer can't do where do you do things that these sort of platforms can't do is so so important for sustainable you know a sustainable career into the future uh third type of value is a shared resource so this is about creating an asset that people can you know access you know, over months, years, decades um, that you charge access for. So they could be lots of different things, right? It could be like um, an, a space. It could be like a, an event space, right? It could be like a, um, you know, so say for instance, you have a movie theater and then you're like, actually, we could use this for people to also speak at events. We could also use this for um, filming, you know, studio filming. We could use it for hosting interviews we can you know you can diversify that shared resource um also things where you can look at like creating a you know membership hub that people get access to resources and they all get access to that same kind of resource um subscription so that's when you say uh you you get this benefit every month by subscribing and what you'll start to notice is there'll be product, uh, there'll be, sorry, there'll be, I saw the word product. There'll be overlap between these things. So you could have a product that also you subscribe to. So instead of paying a one-off fee for the product, you're more subscribing to access to that product. Again, something that SaaS platforms do quite a lot. Uh, resale. So you could be, that's what a lot of e-commerce sites do, right? So you're, you don't make the product, you just market the product and sell it and then sort of mark up that product, you know, as a retailer. Um, lease. So this is where you would allow someone else to access, um, to rent something from you for a period of time. Um, this, you know, even includes people like, I mean, I didn't say this before, but, you know, for people who do like house flipping or 
um, you know, who kind of buy a property, do the property up and then uh, lease it or sell it uh, for a profit, right? So you have six months access to, I mean, Airbnb is technically a form of leasing, you know, it's just that you're doing it in a different way. And it's interesting because I think as well, like these don't fit into like the classic idea of what a lot of these products, you know, how we've thought about creating value in the past. Like Airbnb is kind of a little bit different to, you don't have to be an entrepreneur to have an Airbnb and you don't have to not have work. Like you can have work, this can be an extra form of revenue, right? Um, Something that a lot of people where I grew up, um, a lot of people did that. Um, I'm from the eastern suburbs in uh, eastern suburbs in Sydney, and everyone had properties, and everyone was renting properties. And my parents themselves did a lot of house flipping. Um, and yeah, it was hugely advantageous. I think there's ethical considerations and values considerations, and it is still a lot of work. Um, but yeah, another way to create value. Uh, an agency. So an agency is sort of selling something on behalf of someone else as a third party. Um, So it could be an asset, it could be a service, um, and then they just collect a percentage for doing that work. So, you know, travel agents, media agents, marketing agents. A a lot of the time they're referred to as middleman. Um, Again, same issue with the (laughs) – I think there are more a middle person than a middleman because you can be a woman as well and do that. Um, But that's, that's what an agency does. Audience aggregation. So that's when you're sort of more like, I'm really good at getting attention from people and then I'm going to sell access to that audience. So technically, YouTubers are creating value through audience aggregation. They make money through monetization, through sponsored content. Uh, You know, influencers are audience aggregators. That's a traditional form of creating value. Uh, a loan, so lending a certain amount of money um, and then you collect money off the back of that, you know, with a, with a fee for, uh, you know, like an interest rate. That's what banks do. Um, an option, so an option is when you have like um, you offer the ability to sort of have something or take an action in a fixed period of time. So an option could be something like really simple, like actually a lot of us experience problems with options <laughs> during COVID. You buy a movie ticket, you buy an event ticket um, with the assumption that, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to the movie, I'm going to go to the event, uh, I'm going to go to the conference. So we pay for it ahead of time and then we have the option to attend. We may not attend, but um, we've got the, the option to do so. Uh, 11 is insurance. So you take on some risk for something that could happen that's bad and you get a series of payments as a result on taking out that risk. But you only have to pay out for claims if the claims meet certain standards, right, and, you know, if the bad thing actually happens. Um, And then 12 is capital. So that's when you say – buy a business or maybe you buy shares within a business and then you collect the profits based off the back of um, spending that capital, right? Um, So like I said, 
so you can go to book.personalmba.com slash 12-standard-forms-of-value, but I will put the link in the show notes because that's, or you can just go to book.personalmba.com and you'll be able to sort of navigate from there as well. Um, now I won't go through each one in too much detail, but I'll give you an example of how Josh kind of outlines each of these and how you can you know, learn more about each of these concepts. So let's say, for instance, you were interested in providing a service. Um, He says that in order to to create a successful service, what your business has to do is one, they have to have employees capable of a skill or ability that other people require, but they can't do or they don't want to do it themselves. So if people are like, I would love to do that, then you don't really have a market for your service, right? I mean, accounting is a great example. Like some people love doing accounting. I hate it. That was the first thing that I outsourced in my business. Awesome service. I'm very happy to pay someone to do that stuff. I had. I don't know how to do it well. I know how to do the bare minimum stuff and I also really hate doing it. Virtual assistant is another example. There's a bunch of stuff in business that it's just not worth the person who owns businesses time to do it, like answering emails or filtering through things that they don't need to be filtering through, organizing things, creating templates, doing all that kind of stuff. So a virtual assistant provides a service that is super, super helpful that business owners are very happy to pay a fee for. Um, to the other, the other thing that you need to make sure is that you ensure that the service is provided with consistently high quality And that's a big, you know, that's actually a big thing. It's very hard to quality control as your business grows. It's hard to quality control that service. And we've all been on the receiving end of a business that doesn't do that well. And it's very frustrating. And that's how service businesses lose customers. And you need to be able to, of course, attract and retain paying customers. And that word retainer, uh, retain. Retainer is something that a lot of uh, agencies will actually use. So a lot of uh, marketing agencies, they're kind of, they're a service business and they're an agency business. And they they might kind of use a mixture of those two models, right? Of like, they create value through doing these different things. So they might go, well, for these types of services that we provide, we just charge you a service fee. And what they often will do is then they'll structure it as a retainer. So they'll say each month you pay $5,000 and that gives you to this many hours worth of service. And if you go over it within a certain margin, we'll just absorb that cost. And if you go, you know, over by a lot more, then we'll actually, you know, need to charge you for it, for instance. Um, okay. So... Oh, another example is like a hairdresser. A hairdresser provides a service. A lot of freelancers provide a service, right? Um, Service is probably one that we're all pretty familiar with. Let's have another uh, look at another one, subscription. So um, Josh says that in order to create a successful subscription, you must, one, provide significant value to each subscriber on a regular basis. So if the subscriber doesn't feel like, oh, this is actually valuable, then you've got a problem right? Like think about like a a gym membership. Now a gym membership, again, that has a few different uh, pieces in there, right? One, it's a shared resource. So they've got the gym equipment, the gym equipment's always there and you pay to access it. But you also will pay like a monthly fee to, to have that access, right? So you're also a subscriber. Now let's say that 
you're a new gym and you want to compete with other gyms, what you might do is you might go, actually, what we do differently is for the same cost that you would go to another gym for, we also every month give you a free personal training session to help you make sure that you're making the most of the gym. And so that person goes, oh, I'm going to stay at this gym because I get this extra value. Like, So you can sort of use these different like uh, these different forms of creating value and layer them on top of each other. Um, you know, and then you might also go, well, we actually resell things as well. So if you're at the gym and you forgot your towel, we can sell you a towel. Um, if you need a yoga mat or you need to buy weights because you want to do stuff at home, we sell these things as well. Um, so you can start to stack value on top of each other based on the kind of audience and market that you're attracting. Uh, you need to be able to build a subscriber base and continually attract new subscribers to con- compensate for attrition. So there will always be people that fall off. doesn't matter how good what you are providing is. doesn't matter how much value your subscribers get. There's always people that will drop off, right? I think the benchmark is around 10%, but it will vary depending on industry. So it, it's like don't take that to heart if you have some drop off. You can't expect to keep and retain everyone that's okay. So you need to be able to continually market yourself so that more people sign up. Um, You need to be able to build customers on a recurring basis. So you need to have the ability to then permission to basically charge someone's credit card or charge someone's bank account each and every month. And you need to be able to retain each subscriber as long as possible. And this is something that we will talk about. We've talked about it before. Um, I will we did an episode with Floris Block about this and I did one a while back as well on customer lifetime value. I'll put the links in the show notes and also I will be revisiting some of this stuff in the future. Let's have a look at one more and then we will wrap up. So resale. So if you're going to be a reseller, you need to be able to purchase a product for as inexpensive as possible, right? Which means you're probably going to be doing like big bulk orders where you purchase heaps of product and then you have a place to store that. So this is part two. You need to be able to keep the product in good condition until sale because damaged goods can't be sold. Uh, You need to be able to find potential purchases of the product as quickly as possible to keep inventory costs low. So to be able to make sure it doesn't cost you too much to stock things and just have it sitting there, you need to find new buyers quickly and then you need to sell the product for as high a markup as possible preferably a multiple of the purchase price so two or three times maybe even four times what you buy it for depending on what sort of thing you're selling and depending on the competition now have a look at this like I said I'll put the links in the show notes but what I want you to think about next is okay so there's all these different forms of value where are all my skill sets going to apply best? So let's say if you're someone who likes to work really dynamically, you're great at marketing and sales, you love spending time with people, then there's going to be certain business models and certain ways of creating value that are going to really stick out to you. And you're like, I can do this and I can train other people to help me do this. So that's kind of how you need to start thinking about the monetization option. If you're someone who's really creative and you're like, I'd love to make stuff, make products that people want to buy. Like I want to make artworks. I want to make pieces of jewelry, whatever it is. Then it might be more that you're a product seller and you're finding, you're a wholesaler that finds other people to distribute that for you because you don't want to spend your time selling and marketing. 
we're going to do one more episode on the Ikigai in a couple of weeks where we'll talk about how we can sort of put all of this together and wrap this all nicely up into a little package. Uh, But for now, I'll leave it there. I will be putting up the notes from today on my membership site as well for you to access and come and contribute to if you'd like to. Uh, But until next time, remember that stepping into your power will make the world a better place. Cheers, guys. Oh, we could, we could fly. This is your summer. That means Six Flags in the taste of an ice-cold Coca-Cola. We're talking thrilling coasters, delicious burgers, real moments together, and this. Coke is summer refreshment when you need it most, so you can hop on another ride or race down a slide at the water park. Six Flags and Coca-Cola. Come make it yours. Visit SixFlags.com slash Coke to save up to $20 on passes, plus daily tickets starting at $34.99.